You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alan Donegan, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. What if you could do anything? It was a dark, musty room at the foot of our basement, the only finished part of the house on that level. My brother had dragged down a rickety weight bench, an assortment of dumbbells, and a rowing machine. My 12-year-old body was lanky and uncoordinated. My underformed muscles twitched and quivered with each new rep and set, and my body gave out often. Lorded over by my older brother, 16, muscular, popular at school, accomplished already, his words hammered over and over again in my head. There is no can't. I don't want to hear the words, I can't. Which all sounded great in theory, but in reality, I couldn't. I couldn't do a single pull-up. I couldn't bench press my weight. I couldn't curl the largest dumbbells, no matter how much I tried to will myself to. I was just the youngest of three boys, not as good-looking and athletic as the eldest, not as smart and cunning as the middle. These memories flooded back to consciousness years later when I met a guy named Jason. An unabashed success, he was a titan of the business world, an intellectual giant, and felt as comfortable doing home renovation as he did on the basketball court. A truly unique individual. As I got to know Jason better, I realized that he is fundamentally different than most people. Unlike myself, he tends to see obstacles and new challenges simply as intellectual problems. Whether it is solving a unique engineering issue or installing a new air conditioner, he reasons that given the internet and enough time, he has the intellectual power to mostly figure out anything. And consequently, he does. Our world is full of people like Jason. If we look close enough, we find that those who look at challenge and desire with an absence of fear, an intellectual curiosity, and even joy. These people form the bulwark of any thriving community. They are our teachers, our advisors, and even our cheerleaders. They help us learn how to get past those little annoying words that danced in and out of my childhood all those years ago. I can't. Alan Donegan is an unabashed optimist. He is an entrepreneur, experimenter, and the co-founder of the Pop-Up Business School, and he is most definitely one of those people. Alan Donegan, welcome to the What's Up Next podcast. I am so excited to be here, Doc G. Now, you and I have interacted with each other over the internet for quite a while, but 
maybe six months back, I saw you put up a video of a talk you gave for what must have been the British equivalent of Toastmasters. And it was a humorous talk that lasted five or 10 minutes and it had me rolling on the ground. I thought it was really, really funny. And I realized that most people are really scared of public speaking. In fact, most people can't get up and that's why we have these things like Toastmasters. And I was wondering what scares you? Yeah, the whole thing about public speaking always makes me amused. There's studies that show it's the number one fear in America and the Western world and comes above death, which (laughs) does confuse me. People would rather die than give a talk. What scares me? When I was growing up, it was talking to strangers couldn't talk to strangers. I was painfully shy. I would start sweating. I would get, I just couldn't do it. Couldn't talk to strangers. But I knew that was something I had to overcome because I wanted a girlfriend. Good motivation. What scares me now, it's diminished over the years. Up until recently, I lived in England. There's not much in England that can kill you. (laughs) The most dangerous thing we have is rabbits nothing particularly goes wrong we have very good health and safety and we drink tea in the afternoon like nothing can particularly get you and actually in most cultures a lot of the fears we have in our head just aren't real they're imagined or projected and as I've realized that I've become more and more confident and I think confidence does build over age with experience and it completely changes things what scares me now I I still get scared of letting people down of not doing a good job. I don't like that. It's horrible. And if you're pushing yourself, it's going to happen. But I don't like it. And letting people down, I think, is a common fear. Talk about a big failure early on in your life or your professional life. Talk about something that even now you look back and say, wow, I really didn't do that the way I should have. There's lots of them. I used to mess things up all the time, and I still do. I mean, one that came to mind as you spoke was... I had a friend who wanted to do some business with me. He asked if I was about, and instead of telling the truth, I said I was out and about where I was actually at home. I just didn't want to talk to anyone. I was tired. I, was, I didn't want to talk to anyone. And he took the step of coming round my house to drop something off and saw me sat there. So I was caught in a blatant lie, and it was horrible and damaged that friendship. It never quite recovered. I was embarrassed for a long time. And things like that kind of scar you a little bit. And is part of the reason I am not a good liar. I go bright red. I sweat. Mm. I'm not good at it. And I've realized, actually, it's a damaging thing. I avoid it at all costs. So you're talking a little bit about personal failures. Let's talk about professionally. Did you experience any early professional failures? Or what was your early professional life like? My early professional life, my very early professional life, I went to work for the family business straight out of college. My dad was an entrepreneur. He sold sportswear. He was a character. All I ever wanted was to be like him, but it was tough. I struggled to take the rejection. I struggled to make the phone calls. I was shy. I was nervous. I think the biggest difference between Alan now and Alan back then is the amount of time it took me to recover from a knockback or a problem or an issue. If something then went wrong, it could knock me sideways for a week, even longer. If something goes wrong for Alan now, he thinks, well, 
can I get on the phone? Can I apologize? Can I deal with it immediately? What can I do now? And at the most, it knocks me for about an hour. What you're describing is a huge change in mindset. And when you describe the Allen back then versus the Allen now, certainly there must have been a turning point, a, a pivot point that made you into who you are today. I think I saw you mention an interaction with a friend named Matt in a book he gave you. Talk to us about that transition point in your life. I was in a mess. I was in a total and utter mess. My parents were getting divorced. You do not want to be working in the family business whilst the parents are getting divorced. So I lost my job. My family was falling to pieces. I went to my girlfriend at the time and said, I've always wanted to go to Brazil. Come to Brazil with me. I know you don't have the money. I'll pay. Let's go. And she said, I don't love you. I don't really want to come. So I lost the job. Family life went to pieces and I lost my girlfriend. I was in a complete and utter catastrophic mess. And as I was leaving, the guy's name was Matvey Mikhailovich Ananin. Is a, is a friend from back then, an amazing name. And Matt handed me this book, which was called Notes from a Friend by Tony Robbins. And it's a very short book with 10 lessons about life, about setting goals and doing this and changing the way you think and rules in your head and all these sorts of lessons that as a 40-year-old you go, oh, of course. But as a 21-year-old at the time, they were world-changing. And I flew out to Brazil with the book, sat on Copacabana Beach and read this self-development book and tried to deal with in my head, why did this girl that I love dump me? How do I get her back? What do I do? How do I change my life? And lots of those lessons completely changed the way I thought and sent me on a trajectory. And quite often it's a book, a person, an interaction that completely changes your life. If you go back to the 21-year-old Alan Donegan, was it a lack of skills or was it mindset or both? It was primarily mindset. The sheer lack of confidence, the sheer lack of self-belief, which was developed over years at schools. I spent a lot of time when I was younger being bullied about my weight. I wore glasses. I was overweight. I was a prime candidate for the other kids to pick on. And they couldn't pick on me physically because I was bigger than everyone else, but they could definitely pick on me mentally. And that developed all sorts of side effects. I used humor. I would say the joke about my weight before they would, which would make them laugh. But then if you keep repeating that you're fat and worthless and all that other stuff, you eventually become to believe it. And that really affects your self-esteem. So I think the biggest thing I needed was the mindset shift. And I'm I'm sure you've heard this phrase, 80% of success is the why, and only 20% is the how, the skills, the what do you actually do, the functional element. I never really understood that. But actually, if you look around, there's so many people that will tell you how to do it, and yet still no one follows through. And it's not the how, there's how everywhere. It's getting your head right to be able to follow through that I think is the critical bit. And it took me 10 plus years of self-development to get there. 
it blows my mind to hear you talk about the lack of confidence because I really put you in that same category that I put my friend Jason that I mentioned in the intro. And lack of confidence is just not a term I would use to describe you or or your aura out there in the world as I recognize it through social media and podcasts. So it really does surprise me to hear lack of confidence come from your mouth. People don't believe me when I say it. They're like, they're, they're like, they look at the Alan that's there now and they don't believe it. And I think the bit there is the Alan that exists now is something that I have crafted and built. And it's still me. It's authentically me. But I've stripped away all the limiting beliefs, a lot of them. I'm at least aware of the bad things I do in my mind. It's very difficult to look at someone the way they are now and actually imagine what they used to be like. I wish I had video. I wish I had some way to prove this to you. I have lots of school reports that say Alan has a lot of promise but never delivers. That's about as close as I've got to proof that the lack of confidence existed. But anyone out there who's suffering with that lack of confidence, it is something that can be changed. Confidence is built. You can build confidence. You can build self-esteem. You can work on it. And that was actually my next question that you just answered. But I want to go a little further. For the majority of people, is mindset changeable? Because we talk about these limiting beliefs a lot. And in my personal experience, when talking to people about finances or success or entrepreneurship, sometimes it seems really hard to convince people that indeed they can do things. Like me and those weights, my brother was trying to tell me that I could do it, but I didn't believe it. How do you go about getting people to believe that things can change? That's one of the biggest challenges. The pop-up business school, we spend our entire time selling people, you can build a business without money. You can launch. You can do this. And they'll sit there and go, well, no, I can't. I need money. So I can't do this because of this. And what I have come to with pop-up is... You need to show a little bit of hope and a little bit of proof that it's possible. And the way we do that at Pop-Up is help people get to their first sale. So if they can sell one item, if they can reach someone and get one customer, it changes their idea of what is possible or not. But we have to set up that situation. We have to push. We have to create it. They still have to make the sale but we've got to set up everything around that. Once you've done one, there's that light bulb on, there's that wow moment. This might actually be possible. If you can help someone see that there's a chance that it could happen, then people will jump through. I was speaking to a guy tonight. He's a creative, very, very creative. And he said to me, I don't like spreadsheets and numbers. I'm a creative. I'm just not into that stuff. And that's a belief. Also, I would challenge, like, just because you're not into it yet doesn't mean you can't learn, doesn't mean you can't grow to like it. But most people say, I'm a creative, therefore I can't do spreadsheets and stop. It's just not true. You can learn if you want to. It's a desire thing. And quite often people use those statements because they don't want to try. It hits me that as we talk about mindset, you actually start talking about the different tactics you use to deal with it. I've seen you say before, when discussing a venture or trying something new, 
do the opposite and see where it takes you. Walk me through that a little bit. Why is it important sometimes to go the other direction? Because if you follow everyone else, you'll get the same results as everyone else. And if you're happy with the same results, go for it, knock yourself out. Me personally, I like to see what else is out there, what else is different. Let's apply this to different areas. If you're talking about marketing, marketing is all about standing out. If you do the same as everyone else, you won't stand out, you won't get anywhere. You have to do something different. If you're talking about finances, FIRE community is a very small community when you look at the rest of the world. If you copy everyone else and you lease your car you buy as big a house as possible because that's what your parents tell you to do and you go into debt heavily, you're going to get the same results as everyone else. And in every area of my life, presentations, finance, business, I've done the opposite of what everyone tells you should do and I seem to have done quite well. It makes me think, just keep repeating it, (laughs) do the opposite and see what works. I personally, when Paul decided to leave this podcast, he had been doing all the technical aspects of the podcast and I had been doing the more creative. And my first thought process was there is no way I can do all the editing and getting the episodes together and posting them. And almost like what you said, I almost decided, you know what, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm just going to decide that this is something I can do and should do. And henceforth, now I do all the editing and all the technical portion of the podcast. But six months ago, I don't know if I would have believed that I could do it. I think I just had to, at some point, do the opposite. So did you enjoy it to start with? And has that changed? I enjoy it quite a bit now. I don't think I knew whether I'd enjoy it or not because I never gave myself the chance to try it, right? I came in with that limiting belief, the same limiting beliefs that people come to financial independence and entrepreneurship with is my mind had already decided that I was not the kind of guy who did that. And it was necessity that forced me to go the other direction. So I guess I could have hired someone and paid the money to do that, but I decided to look at things a little differently. And that speaks a lot to your quote is sometimes you just have to go in the exact opposite direction and see where it takes you. And the worst comes to worst. If I had failed, I could have hired someone then. And the podcast would have got made just as well. Yeah. Well, very true. maybe worse. <laughs> <laughs> we will never know. <laughs> so I want to bring up two quotes that I grabbed from your blog. You say the extraordinary belongs to those who create it. And then you also say, you have to create it, build it, and make it happen. Are we lacking creativity? Is that the main problem people come to when they're going to a new venture or they're striking out in something new? When I speak to people about business, they have one fixed mindset of like, I'm going to do it this way. And they get trapped with the one way of doing it. Quite often when I go into these coaching sessions when we're running a course, I go, well, have you thought about trying it this way? Or what about this way? Or what about that way? And having practiced creativity for some time, you can come up with 20, 30, 50 ideas of how to start a business very, very quickly. And people's eyes go, they open, they get wider, they go, I didn't even know that was possible. I think it's people having the time to be creative. So if I was to challenge your audience, if you're stuck on a problem, when was the last time you took a piece of paper and a pen and wrote out 50 ideas of how to overcome that problem? When did you stretch yourself? 
Because I'll tell you what happens. Most times people go, well, I've got this problem. Here's the standard four answers that you always answer. I'm going to try this, 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 and this. Standard four answers. When did you ever force yourself to get creative enough to come up with 50 ideas? What's the quickest way to come up with a good idea? Write it out on a piece of paper and just keep going until you get something worthwhile. To have hundreds of ideas. Your first idea probably isn't going to be any good. Your 10th idea might not be any good. Your 20th idea, you might have a little gem in there. But actually, you don't know. You've got to come up with lots of ideas. People stop because they're like, well, I couldn't do that or I couldn't do this. Or they judge their own ideas in their head before they even let them out. You've got to be willing to put ideas down that are a little bit crazy if you're ever going to find something that's going to create success for you. So I would challenge people, if you want to start a business, get a pen and paper and write out at least 20 ways you could start that business. It'll stretch you out of your normal thought patterns. Do you think this creativity is innate in everyone? I could see someone arguing the other side that says, well, you know, it's easy for you, Doc G. It's easy for you, Alan Donegan. You guys are creative people. But for your average Joe, that creativity just isn't as innate. Is that a valid argument? I would argue no. There's a fantastic speaker called Sir Ken Robinson. He's written some great books. He studied creativity. His TED Talk is excellent if you ever get a chance. And there was a specific study about how creative are people at different ages and the question was basically are you born creative so they looked at three to six year olds and said are you creative and they gave them a test and the standard test for creativity is they give you an object a paper clip or whatever and they say how many ideas can you come up with with how to use this and the kids would just list off ideas, like I'll use the paper clip to hang the curtains. I'll use it as an ear pick. I'll use it to straighten my eyebrows. You know, they come up with hundreds of ideas immediately. I'd have to double check the numbers, but I'm pretty sure it was around 98% of kids that age were at the genius level of creativity. And then you fast forward to 10 to 12 years old, and they repeated the same test. What percentage of those kids do you think remained creative? Yeah, 5 or 10%. It was about 30, I think, 28 or 30. It's better than you think. But what's happened in the intervening years, they've had some education. They've been told there's a right and wrong answer. They've been trained in certain things. And then you fast forward to the 20-year-olds. And at the genius level of creativity, I think he said you were down to 2%. And his argument is, we're all born creative, we've just had it trained out of us. And the trick is actually to uncover the creativity you were born with, not to develop the skill from scratch. And of course, the next leading question is, so how do we uncover that creativity we were born with? And I, you know, I think about both of our stories that we've described so far, me as a 12-year-old sitting in that weight room feeling like I couldn't do it. And then you as that 20-something-year-old living under the shadow of your father and his entrepreneurial success, we were born with this creativity. I believe we both got it back. How does your average person get it back? That's a great question. My personal opinion 
is that the creativity is a muscle. So much like your story about being in the gym, if you've let those muscles atrophy, if they've worn away over the years because you haven't used them, the first time you go to the creative gym and get your pen out, you're going to come up with three ideas and then go, I can't do any more reps. I'm spent. And you're going to have to go to the creative gym. There are plenty of ways to do that. Plenty of ways to do that. We did an exercise today. I was running a session and I picked up an empty mug and the exercise was 60 seconds go. How many uses can you come up with for this mug? One person says an idea, it bounces, it bounces, it bounces, and they get the energy. And all of a sudden, we've had 25 ideas in 60 seconds. But if you're not practiced, if you're not playing those games, if you're not trying to be creative, if you're not playing word association games, if you're not using the muscle, you're never going to develop it. So I would, I don't know, look up the exercises to improve your creativity on Google and start doing them. I've bought loads of books on the subject. The Disney Imagineering book is stuffed full of exercises they use to spark creativity at Disney, and it's fascinating. Like, this is a problem people have fixed over and over again. All you need to do is pick up a book, learn about it, start working out at the gym of creativity. You know, I love this metaphor of the gym of creativity. And right now, as we record this, this is getting towards late January. And so, of course, if you think about your traditional gym, everyone had their New Year's resolution and the gym was really, really busy on January 3rd, 4th and 5th. But as you get to the end of January, all of a sudden those New Year's resolutions give way. And that made me think a lot about another one of your quotes. You said, most people vastly overestimate what they can build in a year and vastly underestimate what they can build in 10 years. Are we too quick to give up? Is part of our problem with creativity is that we just don't write it out long enough? Yes. So that actual quote uh, I first heard from Tony Robbins, just to properly accredit who came up with it. I think who knows who came up with it. It's something I truly believe. We are far too fast to give up at times. I am. I remember, I think it was five or six years ago, I read The 4-Hour Body by Tim Ferriss. I started the diet. I completely changed everything I did. Two weeks in, I went, I've lost a pound. This is crap. This is useless. I've lost one pound. I give up. I'm wasting my time. And then my wife, Katie, looked at me and went, you know, it's only been two weeks. And he said, it took three months to get results. And then you have to walk yourself back from the edge and go, okay, I just need to keep going. If you're on the financial independence journey, it's going to take you 10 plus years. It's going to take you a long time. How are you going to stay motivated over that period? If you save £100 now and go, well, okay, I've saved £100. This is rubbish. It's not working. This compounding stuff they're talking about, it's two months in and my £100 has done nothing. You're never going to get anywhere. And In a lot of what we're doing, these things are an exponential J-curve where the growth comes towards the end and you have to put in years of work before you see that. And I'm sure you've experienced this with your podcast, Doc, is that to start with, you put out the first five and you have six listeners, including your (laughs) mum, and then you go, why am I doing this? Uh, And then... Episode eight grows and episode nine grows, but then the growth really happens when you're six months, a year in, 
did you have a similar experience with the podcast? I did. Certainly, it's been growing over time. The only interesting thing that I think my experience with the podcast has been different is most people say that you should throw away your first five or 10 episodes of a podcast because they're usually not very good. I have to tell you, I'm still trying to reach the level of my first five podcasts. I really <laughs> love those. The, you know, the thing about it is when you come to a beginning of a project, sometimes you just have this unbridled passion and you're willing to take chances and risks that eventually cool down as you do it longer. So that would be the only thing that I would say was different, but certainly getting an audience and feeling comfortable in this space and owning it as I am a podcaster, I am a creator takes time. And it definitely did. So any of your audience that are getting to that stage in January of going, I set this new year's resolution. I've been doing it a month. I'm not sure I can keep going. (laughs) I would say it takes time to create results. It takes time and consistent energy that compounds and you need to keep going. If you're hating it and it's not working, then maybe you want to change quickly. But most goals of significant value like financial independence, it takes time and compounding. I feel like this mindset conversation we've had really plays to the formation and basis of the pop-up business school. So let's talk a little bit about the pop-up business school. Tell us how it came to be and specifically what niche in the market did you feel like you were fulfilling? I decided to start a business and I went to the British government. They had a team called Business Link that were meant to help entrepreneurs in England to start up. And they gave me a workshop on how to write a business plan, finance or funding, which is a code word for debt in business, Mm -hmm. and then marketing. And they did more to scare me off ever starting than they did to actually help me. And they put me in a tailspin for several weeks. I was wandering around going, I'm not sure I can do this. I was in a mess. Eventually, the idea came to my mind that I would write a letter to the government and complain about their service. So I wrote a complaint letter to the guy who funded Business Link, and it was a £40 million project across the south of England. I told him exactly what I thought of it. And to be fair to him, his name was Glenn Atherfold. He rung me up and said, I've got your letter. I can see we've left you in a mess. We're not all like that. Tell me more. And he spent an hour on the phone listening and giving me ideas. He was incredible. And he said, I will find someone to help you. Let me come back to you. At this point, if you cut to my business partner, Simon's side of the story, he sat at work where he was working for the government at Business Link. And the CEO of this section of Business Link is wandering around the office with a three-page handwritten complaint letter looking for someone to give it to. And Simon must have just looked up at the wrong point and smiled uh, because she came straight to him, handed him the letter and goes, just deal with this guy. And Simon says he read the letter and thought, who writes handwritten complaint letters? Um, (laughs) And he was dreading the meeting with me. He thought we'd let me down and they had, but he was dreading the meeting. He came to meet me in a coffee shop in Winchester, And we had the most incredible two-hour meeting about how business plans and loans don't actually help people start businesses. There's a better way to help people. 
and given a few more strong coffees, we decided to start pop up together to do what we felt traditional organizations that force people to sit down and write business plans and talk to them about loans and funding and where do you get money. We came up with this pop-up business school to defeat that. And one of the core beliefs that I've always wanted to defeat is it takes money to make money. That has been drummed home into people's minds that before they start, they need to find money. And actually, I've realized it's the exact opposite. If you want to make money, sell something and you will get money. If you want to go into debt, borrow money. Eventually, there might come a stage that you need a growth loan or whatever. But starting a business, like there are so many ways to do it for free. And don't let a belief like it takes money to make money trap you in your situation. Don't let beliefs that are given to you by society trap you. You ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the What's Up Next podcast. Well, now you can engage our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.diversify.com. That is D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com. And go to the top and just click on the podcast button. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the What's Up Next podcast Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up to date first party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, service key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. 
It's fascinating that as I listen to you talk about your personal life and Matt handing you that book and then having Simon get in contact with you and help you learn how to start businesses, it hits me that it's never about money, but it's much more about the people who are willing to step in and work through with you a problem. And in a sense, isn't that what pop-up business is? Aren't you trying to be the guy who steps in when someone is struggling the way you were, whether in life or whether in building a business and provide that lifeline? That's the whole purpose is the people. Like you will be the same in 10 years time, apart from the people you meet, the books you read, the podcasts you listen to, all the courses you go on, you will be the same person. And quite often it's the person that comes into your life and gives you an idea, shares a thought, does something like that. And Pop-Up Business School was always designed to be a catalyst to do something. The courses are completely free. Last year, we ran 50 two-week-long courses around the globe, helping 2,500 people, and no one paid to come. And I always wanted it to be, come to us, tell us your ideas, and we'll help you make them come true. I don't care what it is. Sometimes the crazier, the better. It makes it more fun for me. But let's, let's have a go. Let's see if we can do it. Yeah, if we can be those people in people's lives like the books, the people in my life that have changed my life. I just wanted to share those same ideas. And I've just learned from other people who are excellent. I've added my own spin and my own thoughts and try and pass it on. Let's talk about some of the specifics. I've noted on your blog, there's this great image of you with a scowl on your face and you're ripping apart a binder of papers and it says business plan on the top. And so you kind of say you're changing the way entrepreneurship is taught. How are you doing that in broad strokes? What, what do you do differently? If you Google how to start a business, quite often the top articles talk about write your business plan, work out how much money you need to borrow, get the loan, get the funding. I had in my Facebook timeline uh, just recently, I had an advert for a university pitching me an entrepreneurship course. I've obviously ticked in Facebook, I'm interested in entrepreneurship, so they think I want a university course on it. And the second module was funding and debt. And it's just taught all around the world. And I've come to realize it's all around the world. We were running a course a year or so ago in the capital of Namibia, Windhoek. Walking around the capital city, we'd stopped for a coffee. We were looking at the shops, walking through the different areas. And I saw a wall full of posters. And on those posters were, need help writing your business plan? Get in touch, we'll help you write it. Need a loan? Get in touch, we'll help you find financing to start your business. And I don't care where you are, it seems to be a ubiquitous belief that you have to write a business plan, start with debt. It is changing. I've been doing this for eight years now. And there are entrepreneurs and books out there like The $100 Startup and Lean Startup teaches you to do it with a lot less. And it is getting better and it is changing. But I want to change the belief that you have to start with a business plan and that it does take money to make money because it doesn't in so many cases. And a lot of the most successful entrepreneurs I've ever met, they didn't start like that. They started by selling something to someone. But why don't we teach sales? Why don't we teach people to go out and sell and create value 
and get customers and build something? Why don't we teach that to start with? We want to challenge some of the traditional ways of starting up. Because actually, if I'd have allowed the government to put me off with their traditional way of starting up, I never would have reached financial independence. I would have gone back and got a job and sat there for probably the next 20 years. So that's what we're up to. That's what we're trying to do. And I guess we're doing it on a small scale. Mr. Money Mustache challenged me after we ran the event with him. He said, could you imagine Mr. Money Mustache if he went round a room at a time telling 50 people to be mustachian? And I thought to myself, well, yeah, I can understand that, Pete. Okay. I need to get out there and do better. I need to get the message out there wider, which is why I've been doing more podcasts. It's why we've been doing more online. We're running more courses. I do think there is a magic to being in the room with someone. And we've got a course coming up in Charleston, the middle of February, which is being run in a shopping mall. And the reason we want it in shopping mall is because I never wanted our courses to be just about teaching you how to do something. I wanted people to actually experience it there and then and to have actually done it. So if you can imagine you're in a shopping mall and we're running the workshop in a shop, you can come up with the idea at the back of the shop and then just walk to the front of the shop and start selling. Why wait? Just test, see what happens. There's no risk. Just get out there and do it. So that's a lot of what we're doing is trying to help people experience it. I've seen multiple quotes on your blog and heard you refer to quotes that say something to the extent of you can have anything in life if you want or are willing to pay the price and you might have to do it up front. Are most of the people who come to the pop-up business school, are they willing to pay the price? There's a mix. There's some people that we scare off quite early on. It takes energy. It takes effort to build a business. Like there's no shirking that and I've never said otherwise. It's going to take a lot of your time, energy and effort. But if you enjoy doing it, the rewards are incredible. And that particular saying, I think I repeat at the courses, you can have anything you want in life, asterisks, if you're willing to pay the price up front and in full. And sometimes the price is too much. Let me give you an example. I joined Toastmasters. I gave a load of speeches. I enjoy making people laugh. And I decided I wanted to try stand-up comedy. So I signed up to a course, started to learn, read the books, did my first set. It went really well. I enjoyed making people laugh. And then I started to think about, if I want to actually be a stand-up comedian, I need to get on stage. I need to practice. I lived about an hour and a bit train ride from London, which is where most of the stand-up comedy in my area happens. I'd be having to go every night to London to travel an hour, and hour, hour and a half each way to do a five-minute set, to travel back again an hour, hour and a half and give up my evenings. My wife worked during the day and I would have to work when she's free. So am I willing to pay the price to become a stand-up comedian? Like I believe that I could do it if I wanted to, but having thought about giving up time with Katie, I wasn't willing to pay the price. So I made the decision to let go of that dream at that point and focus on building a business, which I could work during the day and then spend my time with her in the evenings. And I think so many people go into it 
like the gym analogy from earlier that you were saying about people want to be fit. They want to have a six pack. They want to look good. They're all that stuff, but are they willing to pay the price? And the price of a six pack is a pretty restrictive diet and a good exercise schedule. Are you willing to pay the price? If no, that's cool. Then just be happy with the goal you've got, which is maybe a one pack like me. If you want to pay the price, then go for it. But I don't think people quite often take the time to work out what the price is before they set out for the goal. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of what the price is and what the goal is. Of those people who are willing to pay the price that come up to pop-up business school, those people who end up being successful, is income the goal of entrepreneurship or is it more a byproduct? When I was younger and I was starting out, income was my goal. I wanted to make money because that's what creates the house, the life, all the other stuff that I wanted at the time. As I've changed over the years, I've realized that if I do the service that changes people's lives, creates impact, does good things in the world, I will make money. And the income is the byproduct of doing that great service or that great thing. However, I think that when people are starting, they quite often focus on the money. How can I earn the money? And if you do a fabulous service and you ask to be paid well, it's incredible what you can earn. But the goal should be to deliver the best product or service that helps and adds value to people and then ask to be paid for it. That asking to be paid for it is where the money comes in. I've met a lot of people who go out and add value to people's lives, but they forget to ask to be paid. It's never going to work. But yeah, the income is the byproduct of doing something that helps other people, makes the world better, changes things somehow. All right, let's do a little bit of a victory lap here. Talk to me or tell me about some pop-up business victories. Tell me about what types of businesses people have formed and what kind of successes they've had. You know I'm British and I don't like talking about success. (laughs) I don't believe that. (laughs) There was a young couple called Katie and Andrew who sat in one of our workshops in Reading and they decided they wanted to start an escape room. They went traipsing around Reading to find a building to do it in. They put in the hard work. They found a spare room in a hotel that they were able to borrow to set up their first escape room. And they set it up. They sold tickets. They made enough money to get their own permanent venue. They've actually just, I saw today, they put out an announcement that they're hiring, I think their seventh or eighth member of staff, three or four years on. And they've built a fantastic little business that creates joy amongst people. I've played quite a few of their games. I love them. I always end up smiling. I have a great time doing them. We've never set out to build the next Microsoft, the next Google, the next whatever Amazon. There's plenty of people, there's incubators that will help you do that. If that's your goal, go to a giant incubator, go and do that. Our goal has been to help people make an income, make a living, make a decent living doing something they enjoy. So we have ended up starting a thousand one people businesses last year rather than starting one business that hires a hundred people. And I think that's always been our approach is to help people make their own income doing something they love. So the scale of what we do is small business. There's not very many people out there that I have spoken to that say, I want to launch the next Google Most people are just out to create enough income to look after themselves and do something they enjoy. And I think it's a different aspiration depending on what you want to do. 
So I feel like your story is coherent. I can see how your mindset changed. I can see how you developed and started the pop-up business school. Tell us a little bit about how financial independence came into play and how that entered your life. I had a lot of baggage from when I was younger with my dad. He went bankrupt several times. There were points where my mum was doing the British equivalent of a yard sale, I think is called a car boot sale, is where you drive your car full of stuff to a big field and sell it to strangers. And we were doing car boot sales to be able to afford food for the week. And I had some fairly strong experiences about what a lack of money was actually like. And I always wanted to have money in my life because I'd experienced the lack of it. My dad, one of the most amazing things he did for me was at college. He said, I don't have money to give you pocket money or to help you, but I can give you stock from my sports company and you can sell it at college and keep the profit. So he gave me an opportunity to make money. And that's one of the best things he could have done for me because that experience, I made more money in college than I did in my first job. And I was just selling sportswear to friends. I was selling all sorts of stuff. I was making money on the side. It bought me plenty of pizza. I loved it. He gave me that opportunity to earn money and to get going. So that experience of my dad giving me the opportunity to earn money and the experience of not having it sent me on a path of learning how to make money. I never really knew what to do with it. I was just hoarding it. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki's book taught me that you could invest in property. So I started thinking about that. And eventually someone sent me a link to Mr. Money Mustache's website and said, read this. Katie and I read it. We were inspired. All of a sudden we had a goal for all that spare cash we were generating and the money we were making. And it gave you a very simple target the 4% rule, 4% guideline, that article, the shockingly simple math behind financial independence or early retirement, fantastic article. And it gave us a target. We found out about Chautauqua. We flew to Ecuador and met Mr. Money Mustache, J.L. Collins and the Mad Scientist, learned everything we could. And we've been all in on index funds and financial independence ever since. You know, it hits me that the mindset and audacity involved in financial independence as well as entrepreneurship are very similar. Do you think of these as two separate voyages in your life or are they one and the same? They're two separate voyages with a similar theme. And actually what I found is as you start to challenge society's trends, society's rules and society's beliefs in one area, you start to realize you can challenge them in more areas of your life. So I challenged them in finance, uh, sorry, in uh, business and entrepreneurship and said, I'm doing things differently. And it worked out pretty well. I started to challenge them in the way I present. Everyone said, you have to introduce yourself at the start of your talk. I never bothered. No one cares what your name is when you start. They care if you add value to what their lives are. So I challenged all that stuff. I challenged the way you network. And then I challenged this and I started challenging everything. Then why didn't I think to do that in finance? So as soon as FI said, why are you listening to all those people? Do it differently. I was like, oh, yes, tell me more. And then you learn, okay, so it's not only just entrepreneurship and finance. 
there's certain laws like don't kill people. I totally believe in that. Don't challenge that. That's a good one. Let's keep that. (laughs) There's so many areas of life you can challenge and you don't have to live like everyone else. You can decide. Not there's wrong with living life like everyone else. Like if you want to have that life, as long as you have consciously decided on it, that's great. If you're just following the society's programming, I would say start challenging it and making a decision whether you actually want to follow it or not. You've talked about financial independence as being like a suit of armor that protects you. Talk about moving to LA for seven weeks in 2019. What was going on with that? And and was that connected to financial independence? So actually, it was uh, Christian Bryce from Millennial Revolution who first likened it to a suit of armor. It is a fabulous concept. The idea is if you have your financial independence, even if you've got, say, 50% of your FI number, you can start to make some bolder decisions. And you can go, well, if it all goes wrong and I lose my job, well, I've got plenty of money to last for two, three, four, five years. Never mind. I'll make the bold decision and see what happens. And actually, when I hit financial independence and you get to the point where it doesn't matter if your projects work or not, I'd had this lifelong dream of writing a movie. I'd always wanted to write a movie. I'd always wanted to be involved in movies. I turned 40 and you start to have these thoughts of, like, I've got a few gray hairs in my beard. If I don't do it now, am I ever going to do it? It didn't actually matter if the movie was any good. Like, obviously it did. I wanted it to be good. But like, if I wrote a movie and everyone thought it sucks, what have I lost? I've still achieved my dream. So I decided where better than the home of movies, Hollywood, to go and write a movie. So my wife had brought me a course, which was how to write a movie in a month. I just never found the month. So we booked two months off. We booked an Airbnb in Santa Monica. We flew out to LA. I drank a lot of coffee. I sat, I wrote, and in two months, I wrote about a movie and a half. So I've got another one to finish, but I had a fabulous time. I got a long way with it. There's a few more edits to do, and then I've got to go out and sell it. But you start to go, well, I'm just going to strap on that armor. Who cares if people throw rocks at me if they don't like it? And I'm going to have a go. To take it a step further, if you do eventually market those movies and they go nowhere looking back, would it have been worth it still? Yes, 100%. Because I loved the experience of writing. And here's the thing. I didn't know if I'd like writing. You don't, you don't know what you're going to enjoy until you have a go. But if I'd have left that dream in the dream bank, got to the end of my life and gone... I'd always wished I'd written a movie. You end up dying with regrets. And there's plenty of quotes out there about the pain of regret is twice as heavy as the actual pain of failure. I'd rather have a go and fail than die with those ideas in me. So I just wanted to get it out there. I loved the experience of sitting in a cafe on Santa Monica Beach, looking out over the ocean and writing my romantic comedy movie. I absolutely loved it. It's some of the most fabulous times. I'm definitely going to do more writing in my life. But I never would have known I liked it if I hadn't had a go. And you don't have to be as extravagant as me. You can just 
go to the local cafe and write. You can go to the local park and write for free with some water you bring from your house. Like it doesn't really matter. I just went, well, I've hit FI. I've got all this armor. I've got this money in the bank. Might as well make my dreams come true. I'd like to round out this conversation by talking about what I think is probably the pinnacle of financial independence, entrepreneurship, and even creativity. You had mentioned that you had gone to Chautauqua as a participant. However, you are now an organizer. Is that right? Yes, it is. Tell me about how Chautauqua pulls these various aspects of your life together. It seems like your imprint, and obviously J.L. Collins and Grice and Christie's imprint, is that it has a little bit of each of these flavors in it. It's not just about financial independence. It's not just about entrepreneurship, and it's not just about creativity. It, it seems to tie all those things together well for you. It really does. And when I first went along as a participant, I was blown away by it. I had an incredible experience. You spend the whole week talking about happiness and financial independence and designing your future. And when JL Collins said to me on the way out, I always wanted to run one uh, in Europe. Do you think you could do that? <laughs> I remember just saying, sure we can. And I got the chance to have a go. I've spent 10 years designing courses to help people do things and to have experiences. And we get this really small group of 29 people come in. JL Collins does the opening talk about financial independence and how do you get there. Christian Bryce talk about the suit of armor and how you can use geo-arbitrage. I get the opportunity to talk about how do you make your dreams come true, creativity, coming up with inspiring dreams, creating and building a future. Last year, we had Scott and Taylor from Playing With Fire and a few different people. But it gives us the opportunity to take people on a journey thinking through these different subjects and getting comfortable with financial independence. Like the Chautauquas, are not an event for someone who's early on their journey. They are something that you will do when you get nearer financial independence. And all of the information about how to get to FI is free on the different people's blogs. Go read the blogs if you don't have the money. Never get into debt to do something like this. Never. But for some people, the cost of a Chautauqua is not particularly much. And they come along and have an incredible experience. And it was life-changing for me. You're absolutely right. It gives me the opportunity to help people create businesses, come up with ideas. I get to present. I get to talk. I get to engage. And we do it in a cool location every year. Like, what could be better than overlooking the Aegean Sea in Greece or overlooking the Douro Valley in Portugal or potentially Croatia this next year coming. We're going to be down the coast from Dubrovnik, I believe. Don't hold me to that, but that's the plan. What could be better than that? I've had the pleasure of hearing JL Collins tell the same story about when he asked you about a Chautauqua in Europe, but from his side. And if I remember it correctly, he said something to the extent of he pulls you out of a line just as you're getting to the bus and says, yes. I always wanted to do one of these in Europe. And he said, you basically looked at him and said, yes, no hesitation, <laughs> no question. And then you like left. And then you got on the bus and left. He said that was the extent of the conversation. So we had a good chuckle over that. Yes. And then Katie and I had to figure out how to do it, um, which was quite good fun. But then like, it's a challenge, isn't it? You, you set yourself a challenge. You go, well, I think we can do this. 
I'd had plenty of experience running pop-up business schools. It's different because it's a free event, but plenty of experience. You go and go, okay, how can I make this the best I possibly can? You put your time and energy in there. And Chautauqua is definitely a labor of passion. The amount of work it takes is unbelievable to pull something off like that in a different country with a different set of speakers and the logistics is unbelievable, but it's fun and it creates a lifelong lasting impression. And what I love about your story and what we've talked about today is life is not without challenges. Doing Chautauqua for you was a challenge but you're able to choose your challenges in life, which is so different than their narrative we hear from most people who feel like challenges are being thrown at them against their control all the time. And what you're talking about is creating and choosing your challenges to fulfill yourself. And that's a narrative that I think we need to talk more about in our community and out in the world as a whole. Absolutely. I think most people go along the river of life having stuff thrown at them and that doesn't mean i don't get stuff thrown at me i still do i get plenty of challenges thrown at me that i wasn't expecting but i also go out there and decide i want to learn this i want to learn how to write how to create plot how to create character let's take that challenge on and go and do it and i don't think it's a challenge that can ever be fully defeated because you'll always be writing something else and learning and improving but I've written a movie. I achieved that particular goal. Next step, sell it. And you then pick a next challenge. You know, I'm going to have a go at writing a blog. Never written a blog before. I thought I'd have a go. Thank you very much for reading it, Doc G. That's given me one more viewer other than my mum. And you go, well, I'm going to have a go at this. And I choose the challenges. I think that becomes from, I don't have to make money if I don't want to, because that financial independence number has been hit. And if we don't make money, never mind. Would I be so bold when I needed money? No. Because I'm thinking about what can I do to make money? And that, I think, is the difference that happens as you get further along your FI journey. You get bolder about the opportunities you want to take and what you want to do, and you choose your challenges. When I was younger and starting out, I was like, give me a job. Give me a job. Where can I earn money? Don't care what it is. Give me a job. That's all I need. It changes as you get older, as you get more confident, as you change your skills. Now I would never take a job unless I was excited about it. So unfortunately, Alan, all good things must come to an end, even this conversation. But I'd like to end the... I know it's horrible. I'd like to end the way we always end on this podcast by asking you what's up next in your life and where can we find you on the internet? So Alan Donegan, what is up next in your life? You can find me at alandonegan.com. That's my tiny little blog. Please join my mum in reading. What's up next for me this year? We're planning Chautauqua for Croatia in September. We are traveling to America to run a pop-up business school in Charleston which you can find at popupbusinessschool.co.uk forward slash Charleston. It's a completely free event to help people start up. Then we're going to go to New Orleans and my wife wants to learn jazz piano. So she's going to do that. I'm going to continue writing. And then who knows what's going to happen next? Uh, I've got to come up with some new challenges, something to keep me excited and doing things. And where can we find you on social media? Just search Alan Donegan. There is another one. He's a comedian, but I've been studying SEO and he doesn't show up anywhere on page one to 10. 
I was going to say when I, I always Google all my, my guests and uh, you came up for the first few. So that that's good <laughs> advice. Search Alan Donegan, Twitter, Facebook, <laughs> Google, and you'll find them. Oh, um, one last thing, Doc G. We are running an event in New York in March, which will be at Google's HQ, which is going to be really interesting. So there's a week-long pop-up business school at the Grow With Google space in New York mid-March. There's details on the website if anyone wants to come along. Completely free course sponsored by Google. Um, So there's some interesting stuff happening if people want to get involved. Excellent. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. I'd like to thank Alan Donegan. That's a wrap. So I wanted to remind everybody that the Economy Conference is coming up in March 7th in Cincinnati, and I'm really happy to have Diana Miriam back on just to tell us what's happening and what's new with the Economy Conference. Diana, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. I can't believe that the time is getting closer and closer. I remember discussing this with you like six months ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable how this conference has evolved and developed even since we released our episode probably in August or September. You know, just so much has happened since then. And I've been working on this for like over a year and a half now. So to actually like see it coming to life and just be right around the corner, I cannot tell you how excited I am. What I do also love is to see the buzz on social media. I see it all over Instagram and Facebook. People are talking about the conference. I think they're really getting excited. We talked here on the podcast a few months ago, but I feel like it's time we revisited what's happening with economy and what's changing. Tell us a little bit about what's new. Sure. So the speaker lineup has been finalized and I've talked about the speakers a ton. I mean, you can go onto the website economyconference.com and read all about our amazing speakers. Two of them, or actually no, you included Doc G. Um, (laughs) You have also sent me your speech, but I'm reading these speeches and I'm just like imagining what it's going to feel like to sit there and listen to this be delivered. And it's like, I cannot wait for people to see these amazing speeches that are being prepared. It's going to be great. Um, So basically, the flow of the day. We're starting off at 8.30 in the morning on March 7th. And I think one of the things that has really evolved in the conference since we last talked about it is I'm really incorporating like music and lighting and it's going to be a production. It's not just about learning. It's also about entertainment. So I know Doc G, you sent me the song that you're going to walk out on stage to, (laughs) Um, but the morning of check-in. So for example, a new thing is that Natalie, who is one of our speakers has donated 50 books. So when you come to check in, the first 50 people get a free copy of her book, which is very generous of her. Um, And then you will be able to go upstairs into the event space where we'll be serving coffee. And we're creating a whole lounge that you can hang out in and like network and get to know people before the event starts. And the whole morning session is being DJed by DJ Pete. And I'm calling him my music designer because I'm working very closely with him on incorporating music into the event very heavily. So that's going to be super fun. And like, I've, I've come up with like the stage design and the lighting and like, it's going to look incredible. 
So the show starts at 10. We've got four speakers in the first speaker session. And then we're going to take a three-hour break in the middle of the day. So from 12 to 1, we'll encourage everyone to kind of go eat and get lunch. At 1 o'clock, you've got options. So you'll come back to the main space that we're in. And you can either opt to see Playing With Fire, which is the documentary we all know and love. Um, There is actually a 200-seat movie theater in the same building where we're having this event. So you'll get to go enjoy the film if you haven't seen it yet. If you have seen it and you don't want to watch it again, we have created six attendee-led meetups, and there may be more that we're adding. But basically, at 1 p.m., you'll be able to you'll be assigned to a room, and you can sign up for these attendee-led meetups on our Facebook events page. But you'll be directed to a room where you'll get to hang out for an hour and a half with people who are really into real estate or investing, or we're doing an entrepreneurship one. We're doing one about five healthcare options. We, we're doing six of them. I probably missed two topics, but go on the events page and look at the topics yeah. that we're covering. There's going to be a Camp Fi one too, right? Isn't oh, Stephen yes. Boyer doing one? That's probably That's the one I'll one be at. That's one we just set up this week. And that one is super exciting because, you know, Stephen has been an early supporter of mine. And I think what he's doing with Camp Fi is incredible. And we really want to support each other. And so I'm so happy that he's coming to the event and he's leading a discussion called Find Your Tribe. And it's really all about how important community is on your path to financial independence. So very excited for that one. So those are your two options options in the afternoon. And then we'll get back together at 3 p.m. for our second session of speakers. And that's going to go until 6. At 6, everyone's going to go their own way for dinner. And I've actually created a map where you can find like local food options that we recommend that are close to the after-party venue. So you'll get to explore the city a little bit. At 8 p.m. is when our after-party starts. And it is going to be amazing. I just booked an amazing band. Got DJ Pete, who's been the music designer for the whole event. He's going to be continue bringing you amazing music during the after party. We're going to have a photo booth. There's a cash bar. The event space is the Woodward Theater. And this space is incredible. It's very unique to the city of Cincinnati. It used to actually be an old um, silent movie theater. So it's a historical building that they've renovated and it's just gorgeous. So we're going to have a lot of fun at the Woodward Theater. And then another thing that I added is the next day on Sunday, due to popular demand, I've added three free meetups. So you don't even have to go to economy to enjoy these meetups. But the intention of them is to highlight the city of Cincinnati as the best city to pursue FI. We actually have the lowest cost of living of any metro area in the U.S., That's why I love it. I moved here from New York City two and a half years ago, and I never looked back. I think Cincinnati has everything that you would want out of a big city and none of the downsides. So we've got three events planned. One is an urban hike that's being facilitated by, I call him a a historian because he is like the most knowledgeable person that I've ever met about like who talks about Cincinnati. I went on one of his urban hikes last year and he'll like stop you in this really cool spot and like tell you all the history of the spot, but he's just fascinating. Like he had me hanging on every word. So he's got this awesome hike plan to highlight some of the great things about Cincinnati. 
And then we've, we are also coordinating a brewery tour because Cincinnati is known for beer. We have a ton of craft breweries here. There's a very strong beer culture that dates back over a hundred years. There are some very cool things going on with beer in Cincinnati. So we're doing a three hour brewery tour where you'll be able to hop around and see some history and then try a lot of different craft beers. And then we're also coordinating a dog meetup. And this, this was just because I thought it was fun, even though my dog doesn't get along with other dogs, so he won't be there. But it's we're uh, coordinating at a local dog park. You can come and bring your dog and hang out with like-minded people and just keep the fun going from, from the day before. So lots going on, Doc. Uh, there is also just so many features that have been added as far as creating community. If you're worried about you know, accommodations and the price of hotels. There are three very affordable hotels that I recommend on my website, but you can also sign up to be matched with a local host. So there are two forms um, that you can either find in the Facebook group or on my website. If you are a local person in Cincinnati and you want to host someone coming in for the conference, I will pair you up. There's a form you can fill out. Or if you're coming in for for the conference, there's a form for you to fill out as well. I am making those matches on February 14th. So if you don't get matched, your consolation prize is a discounted hotel room and you'll get emailed that information. I've also coordinated a group carpool. So even if you're in Cincinnati and you're not traveling in for it, why not carpool with other people that are going to the conference? It's going to save you on parking and you'll get to meet a new friend on your way to the event. So there is a link on the website to sign up for the group carpool, whether you're offering seats or you need a seat. It sounds like it's the whole economy experience. This is a full experience. It's not just showing up and listening to a few talks. Oh, no. It's uh, it's going to be pretty incredible. I've definitely been very focused on attendee experience and like putting myself in the seat of an audience member and like what would wow me. And I'm, I'm bringing those, those things to fruition. And it's so much fun. And where can people get tickets and how can they save 10%? So if you go to economyconference.com, you'll see a link there to get tickets all over the website. You can't miss it. And if you enter the code, um, it's all capital W-U-N for what's up next. W-U-N in all caps will get you 10% off general admission pricing. And I also want to point out that students already get a discount. So if you are a student, not just at the University of Cincinnati, but any university, you qualify for half price. So you can select that ticket. through the Eventbrite, and um, you just have to show your student ID at the door to take advantage of the half price. I can't tell you how excited I am to go, and almost everyone I talk to is getting real psyched up for it. So I think it's going to be a great event, and I look forward to seeing What's Up Next podcast listeners, as well as the general financial independence and personal finance community there, as well as Diana hanging out with you again. Absolutely. We're going to have fun. It's going to be a blast. Your story, as I was saying, it's a really nice, cohesive story. And I like the way the pieces fit together. And that was kind of my purpose in the arc of the questions I was asking you, because I really feel like the story fits together. And as I said in the intro, you know, it's really a unique thing to be able to look at the hurdles in life 
and not get flustered by them, but instead to start immediately thinking about, okay, what's the answer? What's the solution? How do I go about doing this? And to do that without anxiety. And I think you're a good example of that. I obviously don't know what you're feeling on the inside, but when I look at you from the outside, certainly I see someone who's not afraid of challenge. And I think if we as a community could learn how to get past that mindset issue of being so afraid of challenges and could just learn how to intellectually look at them, probe them, try a million things, write out a million ideas, and then plunge forward, we'd all create amazing things. And I I think that's such a valuable lesson. And I think your story is that lesson. I love that. I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. This for me is a learned behavior. I am what you said now. (laughs) I was not that years ago. It's all a learned behavior. And it's training to take a deep breath, go, okay, how do we fix this? Rather than going, ah, life's over. And I love that too. Because again, one of the most common answers you get from people is, I just can't do that. Or, you know, some people are good at that and I'm not good at that. And granted, there is a place for saying that you have certain skill sets. And sometimes it doesn't make sense to learn something you're really bad at because you could hire out when it's a minor thing, right? So like if you're running a business and you're not the greatest Mm -hmm. social media person, hire someone to do your social media so you can stick at what you were really awesome at, right? I get that. But there's also this other side that, you know, if you just got past those words in your head that you can do it and you are not genetically predisposed to not being able to do this thing. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, like I said, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because I think it's such a valuable message. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.